Well, as our musicians take their place in our congregation, I encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John, John chapter 21. We are turning to the very last chapter of the Gospel of John. And with this last chapter of the Gospel of John, we, are, we can see the finish line. We can see the tape across the track as we can come now and we can see how Jesus' uh, life and ministry is concluded here in John's gospel account. Um, I'm preaching a message this morning I've entitled, Let's Go Fishing. Let's Go Fishing. I know like me, many of you, this is your favorite time of year as we have these holiday seasons, as we have now Thanksgiving this week and moving towards Christmas, and there's lots of elements about this time of the year that make it very enjoyable and something we look forward to. It's time with family and friends. It's time gathered with people and making new memories and recalling old memories, laughing at one another for the things that we've done when we get together with people we haven't seen for a long time. But there's one word that I really, that really comes around why I love this time of year, casseroles. I love casseroles, and we really see a lot of casseroles make their way to the dinner table this time of the year. Can I get an amen? And what casseroles are, you know, they're just an assortment, a concoction of all kinds of different ingredients that come together in this cacophony of flavor that we get to enjoy together around the table. I'm certain that tonight there will be a multitude of casseroles on the big buffet table that we're going to eat at. Now, I imagine those of you that have this tactile neurosis where you don't allow your food to touch. I mean, casseroles must just cause you to go into seizure or something. But for those normal thinking people, it's okay. We like to have our food mixed together in a casserole that we can eat and enjoy that. Now, some of the things that we'll see, I'm sure tonight, is green bean casserole right? What is that? That's French green beans with cream of mushroom soup and milk. And what's the layer on top? Fried onions, right? Or you'll maybe see tonight some broccoli casserole where it has obviously broccoli and eggs and onions, maybe even rice. But if you know how to make broccoli casserole on top, you have a layer of Ritz crackers. That's what you put on broccoli casserole if you didn't know that. Not that cheap, uh, great value buttery crackers, okay? Get the Ritz. That's what we want. And there's also, obviously, at Thanksgiving, sweet potato casserole, which has sweet potatoes and brown sugar and a layer on top. You got to have this, marshmallows. It's all, with the, with the casseroles, it's all about the layers, right? Also, you have layers of salads. There's obviously seven-layer salad that has the lettuce and the onions and the peas and the dressing and cheese. And then there's even pretzel salad. I've always thought this was a dessert, but it's called a salad, so I'll eat it like a salad and then eat a dessert, right? What does it have? It has pretzels at the foundation, cream cheese and sugar, and then strawberries and strawberry jello. Anybody making pretzel salad tonight? Please raise your hand if you are. I would love to see some strawberry, uh, some pretzel salad this evening. We got it? Oh, hallelujah, Amanda. God bless you, Amanda. Please don't eat it all before I get to the buffet table, all right? And then there's also the layered desserts, and I won't even go into all the layered desserts. It's all about levels. It's all levels, Jerry, all levels, okay? But not only food, but also in literature. There are layers in literature. Some of the classic works of English 
fiction, particularly uh, fantasy works like C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lord of the Rings, there is the story that's on the surface that you can enjoy and you can read, but then there are layers of meaning underneath that you can begin to discover some of the real uh, emphases that these authors are making. Sometimes this is true in a biblical text as well. There's the initial story that you can read on the surface, but then there are layers of meaning or layers of application that we can draw from that passage of Scripture that go alongside it. Now, I would put this disclaimer. We must make sure that when we interpret a passage of Scripture, we're not just coming to it looking for some hidden meaning that's underneath there that you've got to do some kind of gymnastics to get to. In fact, look at this next slide. The plain meaning of a passage is the main meaning of a passage. So that's what we do. We're going to see a a rather odd number in the text before us today, number 153. And I've read all kinds of mathematical gymnastics this week on the number 153 where all kinds of Bible scholars, I'll put that in air quotes, do these things to try to make 153 mean something. Like this is how you can know when Jesus is going to return. I don't think that's helpful to approach a text with those type of interpretive practices. But by the same token, we're gonna see the main story that John records for us at the beginning of chapter 21, and we're gonna look at the main points of it, but there are layers of things I believe John wants us to see, and perhaps even something that's underneath the main story for us to understand and for us to apply as Christ's ambassadors. So let's go fishing and see what that might be. Here's what the Bible says in John 21, beginning in verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. John records here a fascinating encounter of Jesus with the disciples 
post-resurrection, after he was resurrected from the dead. This takes place not in Jerusalem, but up into the north of Galilee, uh, of Judea, in the region of Galilee. Now, how did the disciples get there? They were in Jerusalem. That's where they were in that locked room in Jerusalem. How did they get to Galilee? Well, Jesus told them to go there. We know from the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark that Jesus instructed the disciples through the women and also through an angel, go to Galilee and I'll meet you there. So they're obeying the voice of the Lord. They went north to Galilee. Galilee is a significant region in the ministry of Jesus. Galilee is where it all started. Galilee is where he first met these disciples and he called them to discipleship. Galilee is where he did the majority of his teaching. Galilee is where you have the first recorded sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Galilee is where he did the bulk of his miracles, miracles even on the shore of this sea. Galilee is the location where he healed the, the demoniac who was, had a legion of de- demons inside of him and he cast those demons out into a herd of swine, into a herd of pigs. Galilee is there, and this is where he's going to conclude his time with his disciples, where it all began three years earlier in Galilee. Now, some have criticized Peter and the other disciples for going fishing. You know, sometimes men get criticized for going fishing, and some people criticize Peter for going fishing here because they're saying he didn't really obey the Lord's command. What did the Lord tell him to do? Go to Galilee and wait. And so the criticism goes like this. He wasn't waiting. He went fishing. What are you supposed to do when you're waiting, right? I can't think of a more boring thing to do than to fish if you're waiting on something, right? Sorry, you fishermen. I'm not a real fan of the the sport. So he's waiting and he's fishing. They were professional fishermen. That's what you do. They had to earn a living. They had to eat. So they went fishing. And I think it's altogether appropriate. It's good. It's moral. It's godly to go fishing. So as we approach this episode, though, here in the last chapter of John's gospel, again, there are several layers of this passage I want to unpack for us this morning to see what the Lord might say to us through his word. The first and most basic level of this passage is this. Number one, the revelation of resurrection. This is a story. This is an account. It's a revelation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the most basic foundational layer John is putting in front of us. Look at verse one again. After this, Jesus revealed himself, that's the revelation, again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. So clearly, this is intended, and John intends for us to interpret this passage as Jesus revealing himself to the disciples post resurrection. That's how the story begins, and that's how the story ends. Look at, the, at verse 14, the end of the passage. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So this is the first and most basic layer of this passage. Jesus revealed himself post-resurrection to the disciples. And John says this is the third revelation. This is the third appearance of Jesus to the disciples. Now he's not counting the solo appearance that he made to Mary Magdalene. That was just a one-on-one encounter. But he's counting the appearances he had made to the collection, the group of disciples who were gathered together. Here they were. Two weeks ago, we considered how Jesus appeared to the gathered disciples behind that locked door. Uh, A week later, Sunday week, he appears then to Thomas and the disciples behind that locked door. 
in that intervening period between that revelation and here, they made their way to Galilee, and now this is the third time he's appeared to a gathered group of disciples. And it appears to me that John is putting forward this account, and that's what it is, and it's a firsthand account, as his eyewitness testimony. He's giving eyewitness testimony that he was, in fact, there. He's seated, as it were, on the witness stand of the world, saying, I give my solemn testimony that what I'm saying is true, that Jesus really did rise from the dead. And the way I know it is he appeared to us collectively. How do we know it? Because this has all the marks of a firsthand account. For one, it's set in a real location. He says it's in the Sea of uh, Tiberias. Uh, the Sea of Tiberias is where they, they were. This is the Sea of Galilee. It's called Ti- the Sea of Tiberias. Tiberius was the uh, Roman emperor, the Caesar, uh, at the beginning of the first um, century of the millennia, and so this sea was named by the Romans after Tiberius Caesar, but we all know it as the Sea of Galilee. It's also known as the Sea of Gennesaret, and so this is that location. It's by a legitimate location. Next, we have the individual disciples who are there. He lists seven of them. He names some. He doesn't name all of them, but he gives them uh, a list by name of who was there at this event, and John gives us a little clue, a little hint that he was there because he refers to himself in the same way he's referred to himself throughout this gospel account, the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's John. He's saying, I was there. He's also one of the sons of Zebedee, which are also named by name. And so, again, he's not making a story up. This isn't a fairy tale. This isn't like a work of fiction. If you read fiction, there's kind of this omniscient narrator in modern works of fiction that are telling you what's happening in the story, right, between the dialogue. That's not what this is. This is an autobiography. This is what I saw. This is what I experienced. This is what I encountered. But again, the foundational layer of this episode is that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. This is to confirm the miracle of his resurrection again to us. You know, last week we considered Thomas, called by many doubting Thomas because he voiced his doubts that Jesus could have really resurrected from the dead. And he said, I'll only believe if I have some convincing proof, some convincing evidence. And he got that proof. He got that evidence. But here's the deal. Thomas is not the only one who doubts. Do you ever have doubts? Do you ever have questions? I graduated from seminary now 20 years ago. When I got my diploma, they didn't hand me the diploma when I walked across that stage and also hand me a certificate that said, you shall never again have any doubts. (laughs) Didn't happen. I still have occasions of doubt myself. Questions. You may have questions like this. How do we know it's all true? How do we know it's not a fairy tale? How do we know it's not made up? How do we know that uh, I'm not in the wrong religion? Maybe I chose the wrong religion or my parents chose the wrong religion. How do I know? Here's what I would tell you, and this is what I've come back to again and again on occasions of doubt, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the basic, most foundational level that answers our doubts. It is a historical event with all of the earmarkings of an actual occurrence, and here we have an eyewitness account. You may say, well, how do we really know? How can we really know? And I would say, how do you really know anything in history? 
How do we know about Tiberius, who this sea was named after? How can we know he was really a, an emperor over Rome or Nero or Julius Caesar? How do we know about the pharaohs of ancient Egypt? How do we know about the Greek philosophers like Aristotle or Plato? How do we know about Napoleon Bonaparte? How do we know about George Washington? There were no cameras. There were no, there's no film at 11 to show you what they were doing. There's no audio recordings. It's all on the basis of someone writing down what they saw, writing down what they heard. That's how we know. Well, how do we know Jesus is true? How do we know the Bible is true? How do we know the resurrection is true? The same way, it's the evidence of people who were there who wrote it down. And we have the legitimate evidence. Because the deal is this. It wouldn't have made sense for the disciples to fabricate this whole charade. It wouldn't have made sense for them to lie about these appearances of Jesus. Again, John says this is the third time Jesus appeared to a collected group of the disciples. In fact, Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 3. Paul says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, some have died. Paul's putting it out there. He's saying, listen, this resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's not mythology. It's not this fairy tale. They, he, Jesus appeared to more than five people at one time. In fact, if you don't believe me, most of them are still alive. Go ask him for yourself. This was not some, you know, ecstatic experience of some hermit in a cave somewhere that says, hey, believe me. This is not some pathological liar who says he discovered some golden plates in his backyard in upstate New York. This is hundreds of people who claim they saw Jesus alive after the resurrection. Now, of course, history tells us that all of the apostles, save John, were martyred going to their graves declaring they saw Jesus alive. Look at this list of the apostles' martyrdom. We considered Thomas last week, and I told you that Thomas was martyred in southern India in AD 72. He was speared to death. Peter was crucified upside down in Rome. Andrew, Andrew was crucified in what is now modern-day Turkey. He was crucified right side up. Uh, Philip was in Carthage, and here's what Philip did in Carthage. He led the Roman proconsul's wife to faith in Christ. The proconsul was so angry that he had him killed. Look at Matthew. Matthew was stabbed to death in Ethiopia. Bartholomew was executed in southern Arabia. James was stoned in Jerusalem, but he didn't die, so they clubbed him to death. Simon was killed in Persia for refusing to sacrifice to the sun god. Matthias was put to death by burning. And finally, Paul was beheaded in Rome. John alone died a natural death seemingly of old age. Now, here's the deal. People will die for a lie. You have Muslim terrorists who die for a lie all the time, right? They die for the lie of Islam. People will die for a lie, but here's what people will not do. They will not die for a lie they made up. 
At some point, somebody caves. At some point, somebody breaks the circle. At some point, somebody gives in. After the heat is on, the pressure's coming down. Okay, 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 we made it all up. None of these apostles ever recanted. None of them ever denied the faith. You might die for a lie believing something that's not true, but you don't die for something you made up. And they all died. And so here is John. He's presenting this evidence that the resurrection is true. And it's really a twofold evidence. Number one, we've seen from John's witness, the grave is empty. Number two evidence, we saw Jesus alive. Now, if you just took those things separately, it may not be as ironclad evidence. The grave is empty. Somebody stole his body. Or if you just said, we saw him alive, well, then somebody else must be buried in the grave. But if you have both of these things, an empty grave and the resurrection appearances of Jesus, it proves the resurrection is true. So that's the foundational first layer I want us to see here of this fishing expedition. And that is the reality and the revelation of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Here's the second layer, the service of the Savior. Number two, the service of the Savior. You notice again in the text, Jesus seems to just appear out of nowhere, right? Verse four says that he stood on the shore. Interestingly, that word for stood is used three times in the previous chapter. Three times in the previous chapter, Jesus is just in that locked room and he's just standing among them. He's just standing there. We don't know how he got there, but miraculously, he got there. Same word is used here. He's just all of a sudden standing on the shore, some kind of mysterious occasion of his appearance post-resurrection. Now, whatever the case is of how he got there, whether there's a more natural explanation, he just walked up or he appeared, the fact is he got there, but more importantly, what he said when he got there. What did he say when he got there? Well, um, he shouts out to these men who are in the boat, and he shouts to them, you guys catch anything this morning? Now, if you've ever been around fishermen, you know that's just something that's normally said. How are they biting? You catch anything today? And these guys, I could just hear them collectively say, no, stop asking. <laughs> that's how I imagine it anyway. Thanks for asking. No, we haven't caught deadly squat. We got nothing here. And so then Jesus says, well, why don't you try putting the net on the right side of the boat? And they've got to be thinking, oh, we never thought of that. We've only been putting it on the left side of the boat. Let's try the net on the right side, right? I mean, come on, how obvious. But also, if you know fishermen, if somebody ever says, hey, they're really biting over here, what is that fisherman going to do? He's going to go cast over there. That's just the way fishermen are. Oh, they're biting over here? Okay, I'm going to go over there. So Jesus says, put it on the right side of the boat. And whether it was hopeful, whether it was reluctant, we don't know, but they did exactly as Jesus commanded. And amazingly, they pull in an amazing catch of fish. This is a miracle. This is a bona fide miracle. Now, is it a miracle of omnipotence, where Jesus, by his omnipotent power, declared 153 fish to get in the net? Maybe. Or maybe it's a a miracle of omniscience. Here he is 100 yards from the boat on the seashore. He can see in his omniscience, uh, there's a school of fish swimming by right now, the right side of that boat. Hey, cast on the right side. Right now, I think you're going to catch something. Either way, it's a miracle. And the miracle demonstrates to the disciples quite quickly, uh, this is not just some guy on the beach having an early morning cookout. John makes the declaration, it is the Lord. Amazingly, 
They come to the shore and they find a charcoal fire. This has been burning for a little while. It takes a little while for charcoal to develop, right? He's been waiting on them. He's put some sticks together. He's gathered some wood. He's developed this fire and it's a charcoal fire. He's cooking there. And what do they find? Fish and bread. Jesus is there to make them breakfast. That's the service of the Savior. He says, I've planned out this meal for you guys. Made a fire. The coals are nice and hot. I'm cooking you breakfast. You know, this is not the first time Jesus served fish and bread on the side of the lake. There was another time. In fact, it's the miracle that's the only miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels, the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus took some bread and some fish and blessed it and fed. And now here he is serving fish and bread again. And part of what makes this scene so amazing is how it is so utterly ordinary. It's just a normal thing that people do. They have campfires. They cook fish. They catch over the campfire. Here you have, this is remarkable, the resurrected Lord of the universe cooking breakfast over a campfire. If you remember how we started this journey through John all the way back in January of 2022, we went through chapter one as we should, the beginning, and chapter one is the prologue. And chapter one has all this high theological language. It begins like this. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that has been made. Verily, verily. Move here to chapter 21. Jesus is cooking some fish. Such a contrast, but this is the contrast between divinity and humanity. The God, man. He's here saying, hey, I've got some fish for you. Peter, I think you like yours a little blackened, don't you? Okay, I'm good serving it up just the way you like it. Jesus is ever the host. He's ever inviting us to commune and dine with him. Revelation 3.20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him. And what will I do with him? We're going to share a meal together, a table for two, just me and you. Come on, let's eat. And here he is doing it again. And guess what? This morning, he's doing the same thing. He says, I've prepared a meal for you at the cost of my own blood, at the cost of my own life. Come and share a meal with the Savior. Enjoy his grace. Enjoy his presence. So this is the second layer I see here. It's just this service of the Savior. He would say in Mark, or Mark would say, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And Jesus continues to serve his sheep even today. Here's the third layer I see from this passage the development of the disciples. We can see a progression, a development, a growth in these disciples, and particularly with Peter. Again, John gives the list of names of those who are fishing, a total of seven. 
Interestingly, he starts with Peter and Thomas, one who denied the Lord and one who doubted the Lord. That's the, li- the names he starts with. And then he lists others, uh, uh, the sons of Zebedee. This is their firsthand account. We're first introduced to these names all the way back in chapter one of John's gospel. That's where John gives the list of these same disciples. And here we are three years later, and they're still with him. Three years later, save Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, they're still following Christ. Over this previous three years, there have been numerous adventures, significant challenges, but it was at these very waters when they saw Jesus walking on the water. And it was at this very shoreline, after he walked on the water, that Jesus gave them this instruction Look at John chapter six. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Do you know why these individuals who were listed in chapter one are also listed in chapter 21? because of John 6, 40. There's nothing in them. It's not their resiliency. It's not their stick-to-itness. It's because Jesus made a promise. Everyone who comes to me and genuinely believes, I will never cast out. In fact, here's the deal. I will raise him up on the last day. And friends, if he kept them through all of what they went through, he will keep you for all that you go through. But at this point of the narrative, they're not quite everything they're going to be. At this point in the story, in the chronology, this is is pre-Pentecost. This is before the Holy Spirit would come down and endow them with power from on high. This is before they would be filled with the Holy Spirit to not just be with them, but to be in them. So they're growing, they're changing, they're still a little discombobulated, but They're still following. This is not the disciples you find before Easter, but this is also not the disciples you're going to find after Pentecost. There's a growth happening here. John and Peter, once again, figure prominently in this account, as John often does in his gospel account. Peter, again, appears to be the first among equals. He's the one who says, I'm going fishing. Anybody else want to go fishing? He's leading them. They're following his lead. We're so used to Peter kind of being the bold one, the impetuous one, the shoot first, ask questions later one. That's, that's Peter, right? And when he discovers that John says, it is the Lord, I mean, he doesn't have time to row the boat ashore, right? He's got to jump in the water. I can swim this hundred yards faster than they can get there on this boat. He says, I got to get to the Lord. I got to get to Jesus. This is a genuine, heartfelt enthusiasm to be with Christ. Now, at this point, I think it would be helpful for us to consider both the similarities and the differences between this event in John chapter 21 and another event that's very similar to this event that's recorded in the gospel accounts. In Luke chapter 5, there's a record of something just like this happening. Uh, Jesus was teaching on the shore of this lake, maybe at the very spot where they are right now, eating fish, and the crowds are encompassed around him so much so that they can't all hear him. So what does Jesus do? He says, hey, Peter, 
you got a boat. How about you go out a little bit from the shore so that I can teach from the boat? And that's exactly what they do. This kind of natural amphitheater is created. And all these multitude of people on the shoreline, Jesus is in Peter's boat, and he's teaching them. When he's finally done with his sermon, he says, hey, Peter, let's go out a little bit more. Let's go out into the deep water. Takes them out in the deep water. Let your net out for a catch right here. And what happens? He pulls up so many fish, it wouldn't fit in one boat. He had to call the other boat over to fill up two boats. How did Peter respond the first time Jesus revealed himself to him and his nature, his deity, through a miraculous catch of fish? Notice what Luke 5 verse 8 says. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees. I've always wondered, why did he fall down at his knees? Why does it say he fell down at his feet? Because the boat was filled with fish up to Jesus' knees. He fell down at Jesus' knees. And what did he say? Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. That's his first response three years ago to the miraculous and deity of Jesus. Three years later, how does he respond? The exact opposite. He doesn't say, get away from me, Jesus. He says, I got to get to Jesus as fast as I can. What caused the difference? It's not that Peter no longer thought of himself as being a sinful man. No, I would say after spending three years with Jesus, you were keenly aware of your sinfulness. In fact, look at this next slide. I believe this is the difference. It's not that Peter no longer thought he was a great sinner. It's that he had come to see that Jesus is a great Savior. When you come to understand who Jesus is and his divine nature, that he is God, as 1 John 1, 3, see, 3 says, he created everything that existed. He is the creator. But when you move to John chapter 18 and 19, and you see his death in chapter 20, his resurrection, you come to understand he is a great savior. Peter had learned that he has grace for sinners like him, and Jesus extends grace for sinners like you and like me. They're not what they're going to be after Pentecost, but by God's grace, by the grace of Jesus, they're not what they were. So layer one, a revelation of resurrection. Layer two, we see this service of the Savior as he humbly feeds the disciples. And then layer three, there's this development of the disciples. And here, layer four, I want us to consider the miracle of the mission. The miracle of the mission. Look again at verse 11. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. So what are we to make of this number 153? I've read many commentators this week, listened to several sermons, and the interpretations are many and thorough. thorough. What is 153? I don't think we are intended to do some mathematical gymnastics here and kind of triangulate the numbers, divide, subtract, and it's going to get us to some, you know, hidden meaning. Here's what I think the most basic meaning of 153. That's a bunch of fish. That's it. That's a bunch of fish. I mean, imagine this scene with me, okay? Jesus said, go get some of the fish that you caught and we'll, we'll cook them. And so they pull the net, and they've never seen the net so full. And somebody says, man, we got to count these. I don't think we've ever seen this many before. Now, since I'm not a fisherman, if I go fishing and I catch six fish, 
you're going to know. I caught six fish, right? But for these guys that are professional fishermen, they don't count how many fish they have. But here they are. They're on the shore. The net's not breaking, but it should have. And they're just going, 149, 150, 152, 153. This must be a world record, 153 fish. And I think even just the randomness of that number, it's not seven or 40 or 70 times 70 or seven, as we see so many other biblical numbers, it's just 153. I think it's another evidence of the legitimacy of this account. This is a real event. I just imagine them saying, look at these massive fish. But the miraculous catch of fish is also a story, here's another layer, about the mission of the church. It's another layer about, and I think the fish is a symbol of what God wants to do through his spirit, through his disciples. If you'll remember, whenever Jesus first caused a miraculous catch of fish with Peter in the boat, do you remember what he told them? He said, from now on, you're going to be fishers of men. That's what he told him. You're not going to catch fish as your primary occupation and vocation. You're going to be catching men. And you move to chapter 20, post-resurrection. Three years later, we saw last week or two weeks ago, he says to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. I believe this is a picture of the mission the disciples are called to. It's a picture of the Commission. They were given by the very words of Jesus. In fact, most scholars make a connection between this miraculous catch of fish and the prophesied ingathering of souls in the last days that's predicted in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 47. In the book of Ezekiel, chapter 47, there's a metaphor to depict the great ingathering of souls by God's power flowing from the river around the throne to us. And the metaphor that's used in Ezekiel 47 is, guess what? Fish. Look at Ezekiel 47. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be very many fish, for this water goes there, and the waters of the sea may become fresh, so everything will live where, where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea, from Engedi to Inaglame, and it will be a place for the spreading of nets its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. So when Jesus says to the disciples, put your net out on the right side of the boat, they had a choice to make. Do we obey the voice of the stranger on the shore or not? Do we obey the voice of the Lord or not? And friends, we are called to do the same thing. We're called to obey the, obey the voice of the Lord. We're called to take our nets and cast them out so that we can see an ingathering of souls for the kingdom of God. So I move towards a conclusion. Let me make particular application to our church, Lookout Valley Baptist Church. A week and a half ago, our church members were gathered in our, our regular bi-monthly members meeting and our church uh, adopted our operating budget for 2024. Now, that sounds very stale and accounting. I mean, we know accountants, right? I mean, it's just all numbers. Listen, that budget represents a net. 
These are the means that our church body says, this is how we believe God has called us to reach the lost. And friends, it's a faith budget. We've increased it significantly from 2023. We've added some things we've never done before. You've never done it that way before. That's right. (laughs) We're trying to catch some fish here. By faith, we're going to cast this net out. In fact, let me give you a preview of 2024. January 7th is the second, that's the first Sunday in January, and it's going to be what we call Vision Sunday. This will be my 17th vision sermon that I've preached at Lookout Valley Baptist Church. And in that message, I'm going to lay out biblical principles of where we believe the Lord is taking us as a congregation, not just in 2024, but in the next decade and beyond. These principles of how the Lord's calling us to cast out our net by faith that God will use our obedience to him to see an ingathering of souls. And then January 10th, this may be the most important meeting in the history of our church in the nearly 100 years that we've been a congregation. And so by saying that, everybody who's here, we want you here. At this meeting, we're gonna start with supper like we always do at our regular members meeting. I'm going to be smoking racks and racks and racks of ribs for you. So if you don't come for any other reason, at least come and get some of my ribs. Some of you have eaten my ribs. They're really good, all right? We'll have some chicken for you non-pork eaters too. So I'm going to make a lot of ribs and sides to go with it. And then at 6.30, our long-range planning team that has been meeting for the last year, studying and doing research and, and dialoguing about who God has called us to be as a congregation, how God's called us to reach the generation where he's placed us in this location for this time, casting out a net. So we're gonna be sharing a detailed report of our previous year of research and study. And we believe that that this is gonna be a very important time in the life of our church. We believe God is calling us to be a part of the miracle of casting the net out by faith. And by faith, we say, okay, you say, do this? Okay, we're gonna do it. And all we're called to do is just cast the net out. Jesus is the one that gets the fish in the net, right? He's the one that does the work, miraculous work of conversion. So we are part of a mission that will not fail. It won't fail. And so church, we're gonna cast by faith our net. And who knows, who knows what miracles Jesus might do through our obedience. And that leads to my last thought. Jesus also calls us to be engaged in his fishing expedition for the souls of people. He's Lord of the harvest, and he's Lord of the catch. 